0: Here we are, at long last, the final episode of Season 5 of Mega Dumbcast, our wrap-up episode for The Revenge of Kang. If you don't happen to recall from the previous wrap-ups this season, and I know that I didn't, here's the agenda. Number one, I'm going to talk about things that I liked from this book, things that were executed well or that interested me, good reasons to talk about and maybe even attempt to play this module. Uh, Next, I'm going to talk about the big problems, not just the things that bothered me, but the major issues with Reading, understanding, and attempting to run this module. And then finally, I'm going to offer a point by point outline of what I would do to change the module if I were going to run it. When I first did this for All This in World War II, it was basically a series of plot fixes and encounter tweaks to make the adventure more palatable to me. When I did it for The Weird, Weird West, it was essentially a rewrite of the entire module. I've made a couple of significant and pervasive changes to the story, but I've largely kept the structure and the encounters in the book intact, even as I've added a few key bits and reshaped the story around that plot and encounter skeleton into something that I could work with as a judge. So let's start with the good stuff, Uh, the things that I liked about The Revenge of Kang. Number one, definitely the core concept. I liked the idea of a World War II adventure. I liked the idea of an Old West adventure, but I love the idea of going back to the 1960s of early Marvel comics, to interact with those early superheroes and save them from a time-traveling Kang. That is a fantastic idea for a time-travel superhero story. Not only was this a good idea, but it was actually pretty well executed in some places. The Spider-Man segment, the, the Midtown High section where our heroes have to pretend to be high school students and have the whole thing with Jenny Carson and Flash Thompson and Preventing Peter from going to the dance and missing his appointment with the radioactive spider, not only is that a fun concept, but it's a fun set of scenes. Probably the biggest chunk of legitimately good adventure design in the adventure series. So big thing number one, the core concept of the story, and a special shout out to that high school segment, which is dumb in the best way. You know, I covered it on the show, but other than voluminous podcast critique, I have no notes. It's it's good. I would keep it. Secondly, I like Kang as the big bad of this adventure and retroactively of the whole adventure series. I'm not really a big Kang fan. Uh, He's never been particularly an interesting character to me. I'm interested in his continuity. I'm interested in his whole convoluted thing with like all his different identities and the fucked up timeline and like... I love, just as a curiosity, that one Rama Tut story from early Fantastic Four that then has all those later superhero stories layered on top of it, where different heroes go back and interact with it. But that's about the stories and continuity hung on Kang. Kang himself generally doesn't do it for me, but he really does lend himself to being the big villain of a multi-part time travel story. He's plausible as this master manipulator who characters like Red Skull and Doctor Doom can be parts of his plan. He's that level of power player and manipulator, but at the same time, he's not like Mephisto or somebody who you can't really have a climactic showdown with Mephisto, at least not unless you're playing a very specific elite tier of superhero characters. Kang can conquer eternity in the course of a multi-part story, but you can still fight him at the end of it. You know, you can still shoot a web in his face and then swing around and kick him in the back of the head if you're Spider-Man. Also, you can fight him multiple times because he has all these different incarnations. He can double-cross himself so that you can complicate the story. Unlike your typical big bad, the heroes can take him down, and then he's still there later to be taken down again if that's what the climax of the story demands. So Kang is the clear choice for this adventure. Not only is Kang the best villain for this adventure, but I think this adventure is kind of the best use of Kang as well. I also like the visit to the quote-unquote real world at the end of the story and that final minigame where you remix the comic book panels to create a page of a comic book that dictates Kang's fate. That little sequence of scenes is a fun idea, and that final minigame, I think, is the best minigame in the whole adventure series. A great fun meta climax to this big sweeping time travel plot that sort of moves around heroes and villains on Kang's chessboard. It's tough because that all hinges on the plot of synchronizing comic books with reality, which I think is pretty weak, and it's hard to see how to make the fun stuff about visiting the real world, visiting the Marvel offices, remixing the comic book panels. It's hard to see how to get that into the story without keeping this absurd thing about rewriting reality to match comic books. But I don't know, putting that aside, just in its own right, the stuff at the end of this adventure, I think is at least conceptually fun. And the minigame is just straight up good. I also like the inciting incident of this adventure, the thing where the heroes appear in what they think is their modern day But then it turns out they're in a world without superheroes, and they have to immediately rescue some people, do some real fundamental superheroics in a world that's never really seen superheroes, at least not since World War II. And then they get mobbed by the press, and they've got to deal with that at the same time they're realizing something has gone wrong with history. That's a great like, cold open to the adventure. It's memorable, it's a great hook, and it pretty organically puts the players on the rails. Like, There's one obvious path to follow to investigate and fix this problem. You can't go and do a bunch of extraneous investigation or prep work because the present has changed. You can really only go back to the past and try to address the incidents in the past that have fucked everything up. So it's good for keeping the action of the plot well-paced, moving forward without making the players feel as though they're being held forcibly onto the rails. Finally, and I can't believe that I'm going to use the name Kokri in the context of a compliment. But despite my overall dislike of the shitty pocket dimension, the trial scene and the idea of ordeals for the heroes to pass to prove their innocence to the Kokri—that that is good. This gives me the trial scene that I wished we had had in the Weird Weird West. It gives the players a non-violent challenge, a non-violent way to interact with the people who live in this alien world that they're visiting. Those basic ideas are really the only bright spots in what I think is otherwise a real slog through the shitty pocket dimension. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about the big problems with this adventure. And let's start with that shitty, shitty pocket dimension. The whole Kokri segment, which is huge, which is a huge part of this book. It takes forever, it isn't fun, doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the adventure, which we're dying to get to. We've got like a great hook at the beginning, a really fun core concept, and then in between, pages and pages and pages of something totally unrelated. It's implausible. It totally kills whatever momentum that big engaging opening creates. It is just, just a drag. I liked doing the podcast about some of the pages in the shitty pocket dimension, but honestly, other than maybe like suplexing that sea serpent, maybe certain parts of the trial, although, you know, even the execution of the trial scene, which I like, has players standing around outside the room for like 15 or 20 minutes while other players talk to the GM. Like... It is just misery upon misery in that whole section. A rare instance where my pain in reading through and talking about the worst part of a book is still way better than actually playing through it. Just awful, awful stuff. Moving away from the Kokiri, I also think the overall nature of Kang's plot, as it's revealed at the very end of this adventure, is weak. I think setting up Kang to so thoroughly manipulate everything the players have done To reveal it so late and to have it happen throughout the whole adventure path and so tightly control everything they've done, that's bad on an out-of-character level. In-character, Kang's plot makes no sense. Rewriting reality to the extent of deliberately eliminating and then bringing back all of Earth's superheroes in order to line up reality with a comic book instead of just rewriting the comic book to match reality, it is so obviously ridiculous that it cannot bear the weight of how bad an out-of-character idea this whole thing is, especially because there is so much weight on a big reveal. Like if you're going to pay off a whole adventure path with a big reveal at the end, to have that reveal be totally unbelievable, silly, infuriating, and have it retroactively take away things players liked about the adventure up to this point, it it is a a catastrophic failure of a part of the adventure that needed to work. For, For me, for my tastes. Uh, A more minor complaint, I just didn't like the party split with the X-Men in this adventure. I don't think that it particularly added anything. Uh, Someone mentioned on Twitter that maybe the idea was to make sure that there would be some teenage characters in the high school segment, so you wouldn't be forced to have adults trying to date Jenny Carson. Also, when you look at the composition of the X-Men, I think it's possible given the time that part of the calculation there was, if we have a party... Of four characters, at least half of which have to be original X Men, we not only have a teenager, but we definitely have a male teenager. Obviously, for modern sensibilities, I think all of us would be just fine with Gene Gray taking Jenny Carson to the dance, but I think maybe that's part of it as well. That is not enough justification for what I think is just a, a boring choice. Like, I don't want to spend half of the best part of this adventure playing, you know, Iceman or Cyclops instead of my regular character. I'm willing to give up my character for a little while to play Captain America or Rawhide Kid or Namor or whatever. I'm not really willing to do that to play some random member of the original X-Men. Maybe this is partly just that I'm not very interested in the original X-Men, but I do think when you compare it to the effectiveness of the party split in the other two modules in the adventure path, while there were issues with execution in Weird Weird West, conceptually, it's much more interesting to play the invaders in World War II or Marvel Western heroes in the Marvel Old West than to play teenage X-Men in the 1960s. Also, there's much less of a clear reason for the player group to need to split up. So plot-wise, it isn't as well executed either. Um, if I have one complaint about the core and, and most interesting part of this adventure, which is the part where we're going back to the 60s to save the various heroes, I would have liked to see more of the distinctive elements of those heroes and their origins. Like, we talk to Tony Stark in the POW camp, but we don't get involved with his effort to build himself the Iron Man armor. We don't really interact with his captor, Wong Chu. So it's just kind of a POW camp, which is a little bit of the flavor of the origin, but not very much. The Fantastic Four segment is even worse. We maybe meet Reed Richards, possibly, like while he's at work in the lab. We don't meet any of the other members of the Fantastic Four We aren't involved in their break into the Aerodyne facility, the launch of the rocket. They're getting superpowers. It really is just a generic, like, sneak around the base mission. The X-Men segment has all the X-Men, but it's nothing but one fight that doesn't even happen in the Danger Room, which is such the obvious place for it. Once again, no complaints about the high school segment with Spider-Man. We get to meet Peter Parker. We get to interact with the fact that he's a nerd. We get to hang around his high school, so that's cool. The Daredevil portion is fine. I kind of wish that we were interacting with a more iconic version of Matt, like either kid Matt Murdock as portrayed in his origin, who is like this kid who idolizes his dad, is forbidden from engaging in sports and stuff, but really wants to, or with like Matt after he's just gone blind and is developing his powers, or, you know, Matt, when he's being trained by stick or Matt, when he's in college, stuff dealing with Elektra, whatever, uh, Matt as a lawyer, any of that would have been great. But like, Matt as the neighborhood kid who boxes, who goes to the gym a lot, that's just not a version of Matt Murdock that we know. Even if we accept that he exists, it's not an iconic moment in the character's life, for sure. So overall, way more misses than hits on the actual execution of interacting with the origin of the various superheroes. I will say, despite the clear problems with running that big-ass combat, going back to Reed and Sue's wedding, that's a good idea. That—that That is exactly the right choice for the climactic encounter in a tour through early Marvel. You get to hobnob with all the heroes, see an iconic moment in 1960s Marvel, go to the Baxter building, encounter all these weird old supervillains. That one is chosen perfectly. The last thing, the use of the face rip mechanics in this adventure, and in the adventure path generally, is weak to a frustrating extent that would make the adventure less fun to play. There are straight up too many roles that you have to make, that the author has gone out of his way to turn into binary pass-fail roles that you have to spend karma on, as opposed to using the natural strengths of the face-rip system to make them into roles with degrees of success where you can optionally use karma for a better result, or you can roll with a less good result, get part of but not all of what you were after, and then the story moves on. Also, I don't know how good the author's grasp was of how much karma characters would have, how much health they would have, but there is way too much damage inflicted by just random shit, like particularly getting knocked around by the time machine, by your own time machine. That's going to drain player characters of karma and health very quickly, and there are also a bunch of scenes that sideline particular characters or particular players. If you pick the wrong character for this adventure, you could end up... Unconscious or unable to contribute through long, long portions of the adventure. Not to mention the places like the Kokri trial, where the judge is just straight up instructed tell the players to leave the room, and then you have to wait for other players to do their thing before you come back in. Between that and scenes where just one character makes all the roles and nobody else can do anything, just on the level of like the rules and structuring scenes so that people can actually play. That's a very fundamental task of an adventure writer, and those kind of fundamental failures really, really hamper how good a time you could have playing this adventure. If, unlike me, you didn't have big creative problems with this adventure, you could improve it a lot just by revising a lot of the rules usage, taking the intensities off of a lot of roles would help, changing some scenes around so that everybody gets to play. Very basic fixes like that would go a long way toward making this more fun for your players. Speaking of making this adventure fun for players, I would be motivated to run this adventure for players. And unlike with the Weird Weird West, there's quite a bit here that would make it worth my while to make the adventure work as written, as opposed to just taking the idea and kind of writing my own thing. So based on what I did like and what I didn't like, here's just a sketch of what I would do point by point running through the adventure to revise the Revenge of Kang into something I'd be more excited and able to run for players. And we'll start with chapter one. As I said, I like that inciting incident, the thing where you show up in modern New York, but that's not Avengers Mansion. It's some random mansion, and it's on fire. You got to go save people from inside. But then the press comes. There are no superheroes in this world. That's that's fine. Um, I would skip the whole thing, the whole pointless thing at the beginning of the scene where you're traveling through time, and then you get thrown into the walls of your time machine and lose all your health. Um, I don't really see the point of that. I, I think that the burning building is going to be enough of a karma and health sink that you don't need any kind of pre-scene scene where you beat the characters up. It's better if they're at full power going into the burning building scene because you really want them to excel and be heroic there. It's better for the story if they are. Like having these mysterious, seemingly super-powered people in garish costumes show up and then utterly fail to rescue people from a burning building uh, it just doesn't really have the same narrative punch. So you want them to succeed, even if they have to spend resources to succeed. So drop them right into that. I think I would keep the thing where The heroes initially think there are four people to save inside the building, but there turn out to be five, but I wouldn't make the players roll to find that out and then later find out that they let a person burn to death or whatever. I think I'd do a thing where the rescue is getting more and more dangerous, like the flames are spreading, smoke inhalation may be getting to people, Uh, maybe the building supports are going out and they'll soon collapse, maybe the players know there's something that's going to explode eventually, unlike in the adventure as written where there is going to be an explosion at the end, but the players probably don't know that so that you've got some tension, and then at the end, when everybody's starting to feel like, okay, good, it was touch and go there for a minute, but we got everybody, then have one of the player characters hear the cries of this fifth unknown person who still needs help, so that the player characters have to go in again, maybe spend some karma, maybe take some risks, and go back into that building that's about to collapse, back near those tanks that are about to explode, and save that last person. Making the characters pay resources to save an innocent life uh, helps the scene, And it's going to make the players feel good. Uh, Having them think that they won and then accidentally at the end, like there's a big explosion and you find out that people are dead because of you, because you failed your intuition roll to realize they were in danger. uh, That won't feel good. It won't be fun. And it doesn't really contribute anything to the story. But yeah, basically I would keep this. Then immediately after that first chapter that I basically like, this adventure completely loses me. The Kokri can fuck right off. Uh, Chapters 2 through 13 of this adventure are... Pointless Misadventures in the Shitty Pocket Dimension, that's 12 chapters of noise. I can't tell you how much I want to fuck that noise. I have been waiting. But in keeping with my desire to pretty much keep this adventure and its encounters intact, I grudgingly permit the Kokri and their shitty dimension to exist. However, we do need to change some things. We're going to keep the broad strokes. The player characters end up in the shitty pocket dimension. They're not going to do 12 chapters here, but the basic beats are all going to get hit. Albeit for different reasons. Instead of finding Kang's ship here, I think the player characters find just a bunch of dimensional detritus, like other things that got sucked into this dimension and it crashed in the same spot, including some like time ship instruments or something like that, that gives them the hints that they need that the spire on the horizon is the thing that is like drawing things here, slash holding things here. So that way they're motivated to go to the spire. Rather than being broken, I think the beacon on the spire has been tampered with so that it exerts this dimensional tether effect. It's it's pulling in time ships and dimensional craft that are trying to travel past it. This changes the color of the beacon because that's how dimensional science works. Uh, and that's what's upset the Kokri. They're, I mean, they're the Kokri. There's no reason they couldn't be offended and try to put the player characters to death because they think the characters changed the sacred light from red to green, right? So... Yeah, the beacon on the spire has changed color. The Kokri blame the heroes. While the heroes are looking around the spire, the Kokri show up, basically do the same thing as the adventure has written, where you can either escape the Kokri and run around on your own, or you can get captured by the Kokri and they sentence you to death, or they capture you, but you speak well at your trial, and so they put you through three ordeals. You could change the details of the ordeals. I'm not too concerned about that. What I would change is that uh, the main complex, which in the adventure as written is like this is the final ordeal. You must go into the building that no one has ever escaped from to prove your innocence. And we don't know what's in there, but it must be bad. Instead, I would say that the main complex is where the Kokri send people as sacrifices to their spirits. And people do occasionally come out of there, but they don't have any memory of what's inside. So you can send people in and sometimes they walk out and are like, I don't remember what had just happened in there. And then other times they don't come out. And so the Kokri believe That is where our spirits reside. If they want you, they'll keep you. And if they want you to rejoin society, then they'll send you out. So the last of our deals is you have to go face the spirits. I think that's more logical as a bullshit religious slash judicial system than what's presented in the adventure as written. And it allows me to do a little uh, plot twist here. The first of my big substantive changes to the plot of the adventure. Inside, the player characters find an outpost of the TVA, the Temporal Variance Authority. They're the ones who change the spire to bring in any errant time travelers trying to repair the Earth timeline and maybe the player characters specifically. And basically what the TVA says is, we know that the Earth timeline is out of whack. There should be superheroes. There aren't. Someone has fucked things up. We think that you, the heroes, are good choices to solve this, but you're going to need guidance. Like we've left you alone in World War II and the Old West. All that stuff was fine. But here, the timeline is real tangled. There are other forces at work. You're going to need guidance and you're going to need help not fucking things up worse. So we're going to give you these little um, TVA robots, these little things that you can put wherever you go. So as you go fix the timeline, and we'll give you some info to help you, you can leave these behind and they'll just kind of make little repairs and clean up after you. Like, you know, if one of you accidentally drops your cell phone and Jenny Carson's little brother picks it up or whatever, the robot will go blow it up. Just like little things to keep you from contaminating the timeline. So here have these robots to help rationalize why you're not fucking up the whole of Marvel Earth. Also... We're going to give you some sensitive data, and it comes in long boxes. Uh, per Dan Slot's run on She-Hulk, where it was revealed that uh, like TVA trials allow in-universe Marvel Comics as evidence, it's a whole complicated thing. But suffice it to say, within the Marvel Universe, Marvel Comics accounts of superheroes' activities are considered to be reliable evidence of past events. So basically the TVA have their most accurate version of past events as represented in these Marvel comics and long boxes. The TVA gives these to the player characters to put in their time machine and says, you can use these. They're going to tell you where to go. They're going to tell you how things should be. We've established that Kang is out there trying to mess with various superheroes in their early days, certain points in their origins. That has the timeline so in flux that we can't track down the one big Kang who's behind this whole thing. But if you can go resolve all the time flux with the heroes and make their origins happen after all, that'll clear up the timeline enough for you to figure out where the master Kang is and you can go deal with him. And then there'll be something here about like where the Kokri come from and how the Quokrillians really turned into the Kokri. But, you know, nobody gives a fuck in the original adventure. I don't expect anyone to give a fuck here. So whatever. For completeness sake, there will be an answer, but I don't expect the players to listen as I explain it. Uh, Chapter 14. This is where the player characters take their time machine back to meet the X-Men. And in the original adventure, they have the fight in the basement of the X-Mansion. And then Professor X like reads the Kang data out of the time sphere. And then there's the whole like party split where you form mashup teams with the X-Men. I'm dropping all of that Uh, with the TVA on board. There's no need for time spheres. I'm not going to bother with the party split. So basically, all I would do here is instead of mysteriously moving the X-Men's timeline ahead by a few years so that this all takes place like right before their first adventure and they don't have a danger room yet, just keep it in 1966 and say that's a few years after the X-Men started. They already have a danger room. So the time machine shows up in the X-Mansion and the danger room is malfunctioning because some of it's... Special super science computerized parts have been infected with some kind of virus by Kang. This is going to be the one place where Kang is not personally here because Professor X would just immediately catch him with his psychic powers. So, Kang has used this kind of like optical system, created a visual virus that's infected the components of the danger room to cause the danger room to try to take down the X Men. So, when the players show up and figure out that the danger room is trying to kill the X Men. They try to get involved. The X-Men assume these interlopers must be the people who fucked up the danger room. So there's a fight in a malfunctioning danger room until Professor X shows up and puts an end to the fight cute saying, I've read everyone's minds. I've resolved the plot. We're all superheroes here. By working together, the X-Men and our heroes manage to shut down the malfunctioning danger room. The heroes with their modern technology, like whoever their science character is, can help Professor X and the X-Men find the infected components of the danger room. And this knowledge of like future tech and what Kang is capable of is going to help further convince Professor X and the X-Men that the the heroes are on the up and up, they're time travelers and the Kang is involved. And that's it for the X-Men. I mean, if you wanted to use them for a party split, you still could. In the original adventure, there's this whole thing where you end up with two time ships for complicated reasons after your first encounter with Kang. But that's all just bullshit to get two time machines so you can split the party. And you don't need two time machines to split the party. You can just have half the party get dropped off and have the... People driving the time machine say, hey, kids, have fun. We'll be back to pick you up whenever, like yesterday if you want. Doesn't matter. So that's easy enough to set up. In fact, it probably works better if both teams don't continually have access to a functioning time machine. So if you like the party split, go crazy and do it. I I wouldn't. I would just skip it. You fight the X-Men, you make friends with the X-Men, and you're off to the next adventure. Uh, Chapters 15 through 17 are the section of the adventure with the Fantastic Four. I was highly disappointed that there wasn't enough Fantastic Four here, and I think that sneaking around the base, as mentioned in the main podcast episodes, it's boring, it's too hard. What I would do instead is have, this is where I'd put the Kang with the invisibility belt, and I'd say that Kang is invisibly following the pre-powers Fantastic Four, trying to engineer different situations to either get them caught or killed on their way to the rocket ship. And you can insert whatever like bullshit rationalization you want here about how Kang is trying to be as subtle as he can in each of these time zones so that the TVA doesn't locate him. I don't feel the need to explain this to a great degree because Kang is being subtle for no reason in the adventure as written. And I think everyone would just accept that. Like in general, when time traveling, try to keep your head down. But if the players need an explanation, that's what's going on. Kang doesn't want to kill people or, you know appear in his real form as Kang unless he has to. So he's following the Fantastic Four invisibly as they break into the base. So what the player characters have to do is stealthily follow the Fantastic Four and try to stealthily thwart Kang's invisible schemes to get them caught or killed or whatever. And then the climax of this sequence is as a final measure, Kang has set up explosives in the rocket. So he's going to go in invisibly and set off an invisible bomb and make the rocket ship explode in the atmosphere before it can reach space and get hit by cosmic rays. The players have to go inside in the rear compartment of the ship where Kang has the bomb set up while the Fantastic Four are doing their pre-flight check, getting ready to take off and gain their powers. They are having a stealth fight with Kang in the back of the rocket. After they beat Kang, the rocket is already taken off. And then so there's like an action sequence where the players have to escape the rocket before it's hit by cosmic rays. So this way you still have a stealth segment, you're rewarding your stealth character, but it's a little more active, it's more engaging, and you actually get to interact, albeit in a stealthy way, with the Fantastic Four. Inevitably, there's going to be the scene where like, you're supposed to hide yourself from them, but then they eventually spot you, and so you get to have like a little interaction with Sue Storm or Ben Grimm or whoever, and you're pretending that you're like a janitor for Aerodyne or whatever. Just a little brush with history. I think that would be fun. And since you didn't have a Kang in the shitty pocket dimension in this version, you can use the invisible Kang here. Uh, Chapters 18 through 23 are the high school Spider-Man segment. Wouldn't change a thing, except I would skip the thing where you help Peter Parker with his algebra. He doesn't need your help and you don't need algebra. So we've got enough to do. Dealing with high school, dealing with football, dealing with Jenny Carson, that's enough to keep us busy. Uh, Chapters 24 through 27, this is the part with Daredevil. People are going to vary a lot on how much it bugs them that this whole segment doesn't really fit into Daredevil continuity. If it doesn't bother you, then I think this whole section is not so bad and you can just pretty much use it as is. For me, it does bother me. And the simplest change I can think of to make it work in a way I would be okay with is just to basically take out Matt, except as just a side character, and have the main character who needs help be his dad, Battle and Jack Murdoch. Set this earlier in history, have Battle and Jack back when he's primarily a boxer, but he has, you know, mob figures pressuring him to throw fights and basically have the problem be a guy comes to the gym, completely thrashes him, kind of destroys his confidence, and that's going to cause him to give in and start throwing fights rather than trying to legitimately make it as a boxer. And without that uh, role model of defiance, without that ability to be proud of his father, you know, his dad doesn't get killed by the mob. That fucks up Daredevil's origin. Other than that, it's kind of the same, right? You go to the gym you find out that earlier there was this real badass here who beat up Battle and Jack Murdoch he just left and walked down the alley you go down the alley you help Jack fight off some bat-wielding thugs he buys you lunch and i think i'm i'm okay with keeping the thing where the player character's beat this badass boxer and that somehow saves the day i think that just just barely works with jack it seems pretty implausible to me with matt who was just like a kid who thought he was good at boxing and then he got trounced with jack He's a professional, you know, he's, his job is that he's a boxer and we know about his personality that he's kind of a never say die, never give up type of character. I think if he thought this other guy was unbeatable, then he might plausibly think, okay, well I can never make it as a boxer. So I better start, you know, taking dives to make some money to support my kid. If you can show Jack that there's a possibility of beating somebody like this, that it can be done, expose a flaw in this guy's boxing technique, whatever. That can then plausibly inspire Jack to put his mind to it, and, you know, maybe he can take this guy. it It helps if they're scheduled to fight soon. Like maybe Jack's next scheduled fight is against this guy who just beat him up at the gym, who turns out to be on super steroids. So, yeah, and then other than that, it's just the same. You beat up the boxer at the gym, you track down the manager, you fight Kang, and you're out of there. chapters twenty eight through thirty one are the Iron Man section. If you've got a group where all of the characters can easily pass as American soldiers who've been taken prisoner, then, I don't love this section, but I would just maybe keep it for convenience sake. If you've got any characters who, when captured, will obviously not be 1960s American soldiers, which I think is pretty likely in a superhero team, then as I said in the main run of the season, I just don't think this works. Like, with All Ears and Cub Scout on the team, with Extra on the team, with Silver Siren on the team, this just doesn't work. If you got taken captive and you looked like that, everyone would know something was up and the sequence wouldn't work as written. So... There's not really anything good to salvage here either. I just really don't like this section. I think sneaking around another base this soon after the Fantastic Four segment is boring. There are really no interesting NPCs here. What I'd maybe do is have something like Kang is here disguised as like a KGB agent who is delivering the secrets of Stark's new armor design to like a Soviet scientist who's secretly stationed in Vietnam. You could do something where like the comic stories reveal that Kang depends upon Stark tech being developed in history for his own technology, even in the 40th century. So he doesn't want to kill Tony Stark or prevent him from ever developing his later technologies. He just needs to prevent him from becoming an independent superhero. So Kang comes to this period to steal the tech from Stark and deliver it to a Red Army scientist who can then like find the weaknesses in the armor, capture Stark, despite the Iron Man armor. And then like imprison him and force him to keep developing tech, but for the Soviets. So there still is a Tony Stark developing armor tech, but there's no Iron Man. And so that way the player characters have to like maybe visit Wong Chu's camp, maybe visit this secret Soviet camp, maybe go through the jungle and try to find Kang undercover delivering the plans. Essentially, they have to find and stop the undercover Kang. Honestly, if I had all the time in the world, I'd probably just drop this and use somebody other than Iron Man or do something totally different, like go to Tony Stark's very early um, Senate hearings where the government was trying to mess with his continued research or whatever. I just don't love this section and there are no easy fixes, but I think tracking Kang through the jungle, that's the easiest fix that I could live with. Uh, Chapter 32 is Kang's castle in the 50th century. It's fine. I mean, you got to get rid of the ceiling trap, but basically same place, same challenges pretty much unchanged. The thing about Kang having recently created an android, and then later on you think you're fighting Kang, but it turns out to be an android, that's all part of like the Master Kang betraying the Supreme Kang. We don't need any of that. So when you finish up this castle scene, you just find out that, yeah, Kang was here, he just left, he went to the wedding. Chapter 33 is the big Reed and Sue wedding. I would keep that setting, but I would have the player characters do something to the side of the big fight rather than be in the big fight. So my thought is the player character's time ship shows up on top of the Baxter building. And they look down and they see there's the big superhero supervillain fight happening in the street next to the Baxter building. But then if they make their intuition roll or whatever, they notice that Awesome Android is behaving oddly. And then Awesome Android like sprouts wings and flies up to the top of the Baxter building where they are. And it turns out that Kang managed to take control of Awesome Android, use it to absorb a bunch of villain powers And the plan is that Awesome Android is going to use Johnny Storm's stolen powers, either stolen from Johnny or stolen from Super Scroll, to do a Nova Flare and just wipe out everybody. But Kang knew that the player characters would be coming. So he's reserving Awesome Android to get the jump on them, take them out, and then Nova Flare unimpeded because nobody else here knows this is about to happen. This is a place where the heroes could get lots of useful info from the long boxes that the TVA gave them. Like that would tell them where Awesome Android's kill switch is below his arm. It would tell them when Reed is going to get back, how much time we have. Because Doctor Doom is controlling everybody here with this like mind control transmitter, I would allow a character to make a reason role modified by certain talents to realize from that information, if they do read their copy of the Fantastic Four annual from the long boxes, that Kang would have to be very close to override that signal that Doom is sending out. So he must be physically here, at least his transmitter must be physically here, very close to usurp control of Awesome Android from Doom. And then they could use this information to find Kang's little hidey hole, which would be in a basement, but in this case, maybe the basement of the Baxter building or something like that. So anyway, they beat Awesome Android. However, they go find Kang with the transmitter. They bust Kang. And then this is where the TVA shows back up. And the TVA, they congratulate the characters and they say, you know, we couldn't have found this place without you because there's all this temporal interference we can't get a good lock on anything going on here. You know, there's a, there was already a Kang here in the original events, and now here's this other Kang. So thank you. Now we've got Kang. We're going to take him into custody. That's when the player characters find out that their ship's files were accessed while they were fighting Awesome Android. And that reveals to them some secret files that have been stored on the time ship's computers, including all this data gathered from like World War II and from across history because the ship, unknown to them, was scanning all kinds of temporal data from all different time periods while all of time was coalescing on the Old West during the Weird Weird West. And someone has just accessed all that information and gotten all kinds of data for some unknown reason from their ship. And this is the point for these last few chapters where I would diverge totally from the adventure as written, although I'm going to take certain elements of it. Basically, the player characters go to TVA headquarters and they get to see, you know, the whole temporal variance authority set up. It's sort of a false ending. Again, they're congratulated. Kang's going into custody. He's going to be put away for a long time. The TVA says they need the long boxes back. But then when they get the long boxes back, everything starts to change. Like temporal red alert goes off. The timeline goes into flux. The TVA has been compromised and the timeline is changing. And so through various clues, whether they investigate like computers or they look at what's changing and reason it out or whatever, the heroes figure out that the origin of this change happens in the same time zone as the Reed zoo wedding. Something happened there under the player's noses that's changing the timeline. And what they're able to determine is that history did change at the wedding. Originally, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were allowed to attend, but in the new timeline, they were rebuffed. They were turned away from the wedding, as depicted in our real-world version of Fantastic Four Annual Number 3. It does have that panel where Stan and Jack are turned away. So the player characters now discover that those TVA robots that they left behind them in all the different time zones are actively reshaping history to suit Kang's purposes. They're changing it to a new vision of history, which is changing the TVA itself. And at this point, Kang calls up the player characters on their Doctor Who-style timeship view screen and gloats and explains to them, you know, I've taken over the TVA, I'm taking over the timeline, there's nothing you can do, ha ha ha. The player characters have a number of different clue trails they could follow at this point if they want to figure out what's going on. If they don't or can't figure it out that way, then eventually one of those TVA bots will come and try to quote-unquote fix them, right? Take them out of the timeline. And once they defeat it, they're going to be able to easily access that it has a new directive in its memory. What's happening is the TVA uses its long boxes, its Marvel Comics collections, to continually reshape the timeline to keep it on track. And something has changed about their copy of Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 that is causing all the TVA automated systems to reshape reality. So something about those events changed, causing the comic to change, and that's where the problems originate. So if the player characters go back to that time period, like right after the Reed-Sue wedding, they'll be able to find out that basically Kang was disguised as the person who bounced Stan and Jack from the wedding, and he planted a hypno disc on Jack Kirby, encoded with a bunch of the temporal information that Kang had been gathering from the player character's timeship all throughout these adventures. And using this information, Kang is going to have Jack Kirby encode a visual virus. Remember that we established, we foreshadowed back in the X-Men segment, so that when the TVA scans this comic book, For their automated systems, it will implant a virus causing the TVA systems to accept what's written in Fantastic Four Annual 3 unquestioningly as reality. And there's a new page in Fantastic Four Annual number 3 because Jack Kirby is being mind controlled to put the visual virus on a new page that depicts Kang taking over the multiverse. So the player characters have to go to the Marvel offices, and as in the original adventure, find this page with the visual virus encoded. They have options. Uh, if they simply destroy the page or prevent it from getting to the printer, that'll destabilize the TVA's lock on the timeline. It'll upset the timeline. Eventually, the TVA can reassert control, but like it'll take a while and Kang gets away. Or the player characters can take advantage of the virus that Kang implanted, remix the page and write new dialogue for it, which will then cause the TVA automated systems to accept whatever the player characters put in the comic as reality so that they can write in Kang getting busted and actually bring him to justice. After all this happens, then you get your real ending where the TVA number one explain that what appears to have happened is that after the player characters captured Kang, he stood in jail for a while, consulted their comic book archives. Basically, they have like law archives for prisoners and that consists of comic books. And that's how Kang figured out, oh, hey, if I put a virus in this comic book, then I can change the course of events. So Kang basically time traveled back from after he got away from the TVA to the previous events where he was captured and used the distraction of his own capture to alter the comic books, to encode a virus which he could then find in the law library at the TVA as a prisoner there after he was captured and affect his escape. So Kang didn't create all these different events, like the player characters really did capture Kang, but he then went back in time and took advantage of the events he already knew were going to happen to set up his own jailbreak. Including, because he knew the player characters were going to be involved, he went back to the Orfu timeship and inserted this secret file to gather data from their adventures from the timeline, and he arranged the events in the Weird Weird West. He arranged like the whole time crash so that the sensors in the timeship could pick up all the essential data from across Earth's history, which he needed to compile the detailed timeline information to pass to the TVA robots so that they could rewrite the timeline to his specifications. Keeping in mind that he did all this either while incarcerated or while on the run from the TVA after breaking out. And so that explains why he didn't go and do all of it himself. He set the events into motion and used this haze that we've been talking about, where like the TVA can't see exactly what's going on because the timeline is so tangled, as cover so that the TVA wouldn't immediately bust him for all this. So that explains why he involved the player characters in this. So finally, the TVA are duly impressed by the characters. And that's when, instead of in the original adventure, like the time machine just breaks, the TVA would say, hey, great job. The bad news is we can't have rogue people out there with time machines fucking up the timeline. So you have two options. Either number one, we'll, you know, thank you and shake your hands and take away your time machine. Or number two, if you want to keep the time machine, you can be contractors for the TVA and just like do occasional time travel missions for us. So that way you can have future uh, time travel adventures in your campaign if you want to keep playing these characters. And they just have like a time machine that sits there until they need to do a time travel story. Oh, and also the TVA, remember how when people came out of the main complex in the shitty pocket dimension, they didn't remember what happened with the spirits there. That's because the TVA have like men in black style memory erasers. And so they also use those on the player characters to erase specifically their memories of like the hero's secret identities and stuff like that. So that way the player characters still remember in general what happened during this adventure and this adventure path. But the judge doesn't need to worry about them now, like knowing Spider-Man's secret identity or whatever. So that's it. That That is my rewrite. That is a version of the Revenge of Kang that I'm happy with. That's a version of Kang's overarching plot that I'm happy with. Obviously, there are a lot of different ways to solve the problems that this adventure path raises, but uh, that is mine for your consideration. Some possibilities if you ever wanted to run this adventure, which I I think you might. I think particularly if you have enjoyed the time travel elements of these three adventures, even if there have been many execution problems, both on a creative and mechanical level with all this, as a trilogy of time travel stories With concepts being World War II, Wild West, and then early Marvel in the 1960s, there really is a lot of raw material here, like Kang as the big bad. This wouldn't be a bad adventure path to run if you wanted to do a big face rip time travel story. And if you did want to do that, I think you definitely would use this last adventure. You wouldn't do all this in World War II and then the Weird Weird West and then something else. Because again, the concept of this one is probably the best concept in the series. And all the Kang stuff is what ties it all together. So I think the odds are good that if you ever really did want to play any of this, you would definitely play this adventure. That's it for season five. Season five of MDC is done. So now it's time to talk about what's coming next. But first of all, as always, between MDC seasons, there will be a hiatus. I don't know exactly how long it'll be, um, but I do already have my eyes on what I think is going to be next season's book. We'll see. I'm still looking at some candidates, but I, I think I've got it. So we'll see how long this hiatus ends up being. It also depends on how long it takes me to get back into a workable recording situation. Speaking of which, some old business. There is more Fuck Mary Slay coming on the MDC Patreon. Uh, we recently hit a Patreon goal where I was going to start releasing extra Fuck Mary Slay episodes. Instead, I started releasing no Fuck Mary Slay episodes uh, because during my big move recently, it simply was not possible for me to even record, let alone record and edit episodes. It was all I could do to manage to get the rest of the season out. So I do apologize for that. However, I am now moved in. I have now begun recording. There are now Fuck, Mary Slay episodes in the can awaiting release, so there will be Fuck, Mary Slay episodes released in February, March, April, and thereafter. There will also be additional releases, as there always are during these hiatus months. I'll release at least one more thing each of these months, probably more. Some of that's going to be just like addenda to this season. Just like after the Street Fighter season, I released all kinds of tangentially related Street Fighter shit, just like I did the uh, countdown episodes after the Heroes Unlimited season. There will be something in this hiatus. Some of it's going to be related to the Time Warp Adventure series, Face Rip, and so on. Uh, the hero teams that I've created for this season. Other things are going to be related to Fuck Mary Slay, possibly. Also, I have a bunch of ideas for other things that I might release on this feed or elsewhere that I've kind of started work on. So you might see some sort of pilots for new projects for you to weigh in on. Particularly if you're a patron. Uh, once again, I direct you to Patreon.com/Megadumbcast. I may or may not release a lot of public stuff on the daily feed during the hiatus, but everything I produce during that period will definitely come out for patrons on Patreon. Um, Also, if, as some people do, you want to catch up on old seasons of the show during the hiatus, Patreon is the place to go because that's where you find those Megasode compilations for much easier listening if you want to catch up on seasons that you missed, as well as a bunch of other material that is not on the daily feed. So anyway, that's it. More stuff coming on Patreon, possibly more stuff coming on this feed. And definitely season six of MDC coming after a hiatus. In the meantime, if you want to hear more of me, I have a few belated plugs. Due to aforementioned recording difficulties, I've had a pretty hard time plugging things in a timely fashion. So forgive the pileup. I don't even remember if I did some of these plugs, but uh, I was on the Next Wrestling Fan, NXT Wrestling Fan podcast, uh, which is normally about NXT, which is a wrestling show, a very good wrestling show. The episode that I was on, was not about wrestling. It was about a romance novel entitled How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire. If you go to nxtwrestlingfan.libson.com and search there for vampire or Chris Newton or bonus episode eight, you will find that episode that I was on. That episode was released on October 30th of 2021, which was a long time ago. Also, the Smash Fiction podcast, which is now defunct, still does an annual Miss episode that pits specifically Nick Cage characters against each other in a pro wrestling style cage match. I was the host of Cage Miss this Christmas. So if you go to smashfiction.libsyn.com and search for my name or for Cage Miss or for Cage Match or whatever, or just look at the last episode on the feed, you will find Cage Match 2021, Johnny Collins versus Robin Feld versus Hero versus Seth, and you can listen to that episode. I love Smash Fiction. I'm glad that I still get to enjoy it at least once a year. And I'm very proud of my performance in that episode, given that I was in the middle of a very difficult move. Uh, and I think I did a pretty good job as the guest judge, even though, due to time constraints, I did have to rip off the opening fiction from the book of Job, of all places. But it, that's in the public domain, right? I think Job at this point has entered the public domain. It's fine. I've also been on a couple of episodes of the Hard Choices podcast, one of which has yet to be released, but I think will be coming out this month here in February. I was on the Vampires episode, and the one that is going to be coming out in the near future is the Disney Villains episode. This is a podcast about ranking the fuckability of fictional characters from various groupings of fictional characters by genre or fictional universe or whatever. It's a really fun show that I really love and that has a hard time advertising because it turns out that various algorithms don't like it when you say the word fuck in the description of a show. So please do go out of your way to find the Hard Choices podcast at, among other places, Uh, where you can find me and lots of other delightful people speculating on the fuckability of fictional characters. I hope that's a complete list of everything I've forgotten to plug in the last few uh, very tumultuous months for me, but probably not. And in any case, it can't be a complete list because by the time this episode drops, like tomorrow, as I record this, I will no doubt have accepted and completed another invitation to be on another goddamn podcast, because somehow being on my bullshit every single day is just not enough. I have to go be on other bullshit too, as a supplement. That's it. Stay tuned to the daily feed. Stay tuned to the Patreon feed if you're a patron. I will see you soon in season number six of MDC, The Mega Dumb Cast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big Megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons license, is Take Us to the Nearest Starbase by Astrometrics whose work you can find at soundcloud.com slash astrometricsband.